Thank you so much for joining me for this bonus mini Thanksgiving Day episode of California Dreaming. I hope to have it up and ready for the holiday. I'm kind of lagging a little bit getting it put together. And I hope all of you are having a fantastic Thanksgiving with your families. And if you're outside the United States, I hope you're having a fantastic Thursday. And it is my pleasure to bring you this special Thanksgiving edition of California Dreaming, the tale of the Thanksgiving Day Stanford disaster of 1900. You all know by now that before I get to the heart of each episode, I kind of like giving you some sort of personal anecdote or related story before leading into the main part of it all. I think someone commented or left a review that said that I kind of meander into the story. That's a pretty good description of what I do. So for this one, I started Googling sports disasters. And man, what is the deal with soccer in foreign countries? You try Googling it. You'd be hard pressed to find very many sports disasters that don't involve soccer and either a stadium collapse or a plane crash. And that's not even including all of the riots, stampedes, trampling, and overall fanatical bedlam and mayhem at soccer venues. The lists are endless. May 1964 in Peru. Riots after Argentina beats Peru. 318 people killed. January 1971 in Scotland. Stairway barriers collapse causing a massive pileup of fans. 66 people killed. October 1982 in Russia. Fans crushed to death as they leave a game in Moscow. However, the tragedy wasn't disclosed by the former Soviet Union for years, and when they finally did, they give an official death toll of 66. However, the actual number sought to be as high as 340. May 1985 in England, 56 people are killed when a fire broke out in the stands. Also in May of 1985 in Belgium, 35 people are killed in rioting before the European Cup final. They didn't even wait until after the game. March 1988 in Nepal, 93 people are killed attempting to flee a hailstorm that erupted during the game. April 1989 in England, in Britain's worst sporting disaster, 96 people are killed in a crowd surge that crushed packed fans against barrier at the English FA Cup semifinals. Many of those that were killed died while they were standing up. January 1991, South Africa, 42 people killed in a stampede during a preseason game. Preseason, the match didn't even count. In May 1992 in France, 18 people killed when a stadium collapses at a French Cup game. October 1996 in Guatemala, 80 people are killed as an avalanche of fans tumble down seats and stairways at a World Cup qualifying match. Fake tickets brought more people into the stadium than it could hold. April 2001, South Africa. 43 people crushed to death when soccer fans try to force their way into Johannesburg Ellis Park Stadium during a South African League match. May 2001 in Ghana. 126 people killed when chaos erupts after police fire tear gas at fans who were tearing up stadium seats. March 2009, Ivory Coast. 19 people killed in a stampede before a World Cup qualifying match. And in February 2012 in Egypt, 
73 people killed when fans riot after a local team upsets one of Egypt's most successful clubs. I googled soccer disasters in the United States, but I could not find anything. I'm assuming it's due in large part to the fact that fans aren't as passionate about soccer here in the United States as they are in other countries. It's not the kind of football Americans tend to gravitate towards. However, there is one football disaster. And by football, I'm talking about American football, not soccer. There is one disaster that happened on Thanksgiving Day in the year 1900. I found a couple of articles about the event that took place during that game between rival Stanford and the California Golden Bears, the team that represented Berkeley. But the events of the disaster of that rivalry game was quickly swept under the rug at the time, with hardly a mention of it in any of the newspapers the following day. In an article written by Sam Scott for the Stanford Alumni Magazine in 2015 was a story about the disaster that was so well written and researched, I hardly needed to look any further. That game on Thanksgiving Day between Stanford and Cal in 1900 would be only the 10th time the two teams faced off, but the rivalry was already reaching a fever pitch, and fans in the San Francisco area were clamoring to get into the annual game between the two teams. In 1897, some 15,000 fans were jam-packed into a space that was only suited for maybe about 10,000. What made it even more difficult was droves of freeloaders, mostly boys, who were making their way past police hopping the fences to get into the stands to see the game. Now this is kind of starting to sound like a modern day soccer event, right? And just like those foreign soccer venues, structures were flimsy and all these football fans were precariously seated in places not meant to hold spectators, despite warnings from the contractor who built the stands. As the game was coming to a close, a section of the roof covering the grandstands collapsed under the weight of all the fans who weren't supposed to be up there. As the spectators began to panic, they toppled barricades and fences to help pull support beams and other debris off of those trapped under the collapse. But amazingly, nobody was killed that day. However, fast forward three years to Thanksgiving Day 1900, and those very same factors would align as game day was getting underway. An overflow of fans for the big game, excited but unattended to kids, and an overwhelmed police force would all lend to the disaster to come. This was the dawn of the 20th century, and this rivalry game between Stanford and Cal was becoming bigger and bigger with each passing year. They had come a long way since their first meeting in 1892, when they had this kind of ridiculous half-hour delay because team managers, one of them being future president Herbert Hoover, forgot to bring a ball to the game. So many people were showing up to these games, more than anyone would have anticipated. And as the turn of the century was approaching, interest in the big game was growing exponentially. The rivalry grew even more contentious in 1898 when the mayor of San Francisco offered a bronze statue to the winning team of the two out of the next three showdowns. Having been winless at that point, Cal stepped it up with a pair of victories, thus claiming the bronze statue. This would bring into the mix the much-needed element of true competitiveness for the growing rivalry. 
And with this bronze statue adorning the outside of the Berkeley campus came the elements of payback and redemption. The Thanksgiving game day of 1900 was being hyped as the biggest game ever. The estimated crowd of 19,000 was being labeled as the largest attendance for a sporting event west of the Mississippi. In the days leading up to the big game, the field located on 16th Street in Folsom was clamoring with construction workers, rushing to build bleachers in anticipation of a capacity crowd. This game was also marking the end of an era for bragging rights on this field in San Francisco's Mission District, as neither campus had a stadium big enough to support the crowd the game drew. But this was going to be the last game played there on Thanksgiving. After this one, it was scheduled to be played at alternating campuses and earlier in the season to avoid the holiday. This was going to be the last time this game was going to be held on this field on Thanksgiving. What you also need to know about this mission district is that it's mostly a working class neighborhood that was home to a new industrial establishment, the San Francisco and Pacific Glassworks, a building that overlooked the north side of the playing field. It was set to become the largest glassworks plant west of Chicago and a place that would employ approximately 750 people. The furnace that was located at the factory an enormous enclosed brick configuration that had been reinforced to be able to sustain temperatures of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit or roughly 1,650 degrees Celsius. The glassworks factory had been scheduled to begin operations the Monday following Thanksgiving. Inside was 15 tons of molten glass churning at that scorching temperature. Adjacent to the factory, the stands began to fill at approximately 10.30 in the morning, four hours before kickoff time. Fans were coming in by train, boat, and carriage. And in the standing room only section, they were jam-packed, filling every single bit of available space. For the fans that were unable or unwilling to pay the $1 ticket, they were scrambling to look for an alternative way to get into the game. If they were crawling under fences, they were quickly chased away. One tried climbing the water tower nearby, but that view was obstructed. There was, however, a throng of eager fans making their way into what seemed like the perfect vantage point, the glassworks building. The superintendent of the plant had been warned of the chances of people trying to get to the top of the glassworks building to try and view the game from there. Organizers of the game had even given him six free tickets in exchange for ensuring that nobody gets on the roof. But either this guy didn't take the warning seriously, or he misjudged the integrity of the building. Whatever he did, he did not keep spectators off the roof. There was speculation that the watchman he had hired decided to charge admission to the roof for a fee. At any rate, there was a sudden rush to get onto the factory grounds, and soon that crowd was out of control. So anxious to make it up to the roof before kickoff, kids were making their way through the fence in droves. Within minutes, the roof was filled with fans. By some counts, there were approximately 400 people up there, many of them standing on the building's ventilator, a section of corrugated iron roofing that is approximately 72 feet long by 8 feet wide or 22 meters long by 2.5 meters wide. This ventilator was where the heat escaped the furnace. 
The view from the roof was incredible. From there, one could see the entire football field. Unfortunately, what these people on the roof didn't know that the building was actually rather flimsy and it was constructed to basically hold no more weight than its own. Those who could tell and became aware of the fragile structure quickly made their way down, but mostly those that were up there were stuck. The crowd wasn't about to make way for anyone to get down. As the game started, the Glassworks officials tried to get help by calling police headquarters, but they were transferred to a substation. They were told to talk to the lieutenant, who was actually at the game, but when they tried, police officers patrolling the outside of the stadium would not let them in. There were 60 officers assigned to the game, 40 on the inside and 20 on the outside. So it's likely they would not have been able to do much to help get the crowd of spectators off the roof of the glassworks factory anyway. 20 minutes into the game, the crowd was going wild as Cal was making its way deep into Stanford territory for the first time in the game. Suddenly, there was a crashing sound coming from the north side of the field, bringing the game to an immediate halt. All eyes were cast in the direction of the crashing sound. Players stood still on the field, glancing that way as well. It wasn't exactly clear as to what had happened, but according to one account of that moment, it seems a Berkeley fan, afraid of this being a Stanford diversion tactic, shouted, it's a job, and suddenly, everyone's attention was back to the game, and it would continue on, as if nothing had happened. The school's marching bands and cheers from the fans drowned out all of the screams and the terror that was transpiring right next door. The roof of the glassworks factory had collapsed under the weight of all those spectators standing atop it. Those who were the first to fully comprehend what exactly was going on there were those who had just come down from the roof, having barely escaped becoming a part of the tragedy themselves. An employee of the factory had been inside raking the fire when the roof caved in and people began falling all around him, barely missing him. He attempted to quickly get those who had fallen atop the actual furnace with a large poker, while another employee ran to turn off the oils that fed the fire inside the furnace. It was estimated that the surface temperature of the furnace was approximately 500 degrees Fahrenheit, or 200 degrees Celsius. The article goes into some details as to what witnesses saw as people fell and landed on the furnace, but I'm not going to get into too many of those details. Despite the fact that the furnace was located on the furthest side of the building away from the football field, and most of the spectators had crowded over to the one side closest to the field, there was still a 50-foot fall that could easily kill someone just the same especially if they were hit by other falling spectators. Rescue personnel were overwhelmed by the scene when they arrived. Bodies were scattered all over the factory. Those who were injured were moaning and writhing in pain. And as you can imagine, the smell of burnt clothing and burnt flesh filled the air. It was an awful sight and rescuers and firefighters didn't know which way was which, having to sort through who was dead, 
and who needed to be attended to. Everyone in the neighborhood with the phone was calling for help, and anything that could carry victims was commandeered to get the wounded to hospitals, including wagons and butcher carts. Doctors from all over were called back to work from their Thanksgiving dinners. What may seem kind of odd to us today is that when all of this was happening, people at the game paid no mind to the flurry of activity outside the stadium. Those that were seated high up in the stands could see the ambulances. They could see police and ushers at the game were calling to the stands for doctors. With no real way to communicate effectively through the stadium, the details of what was going on slowly spread, somewhat through the crowd. As a matter of fact, the news of the disaster never even reached the playing field. Stanford ended up winning the game in the final minutes with the very first successful field goal in the history of the big game. When the whistle blew, Stanford fans rushed the field, hoisting star players onto their shoulders and began a celebratory march down Market Street to the Palace Hotel. However, everywhere else in San Francisco, the city hospitals were filled with horrified crowds of people trying to get in the doors which police ended up having to barricade. Boys were lying all over the floor in the corridors of the hospitals, struggling, injured, and in tremendous pain. And at the morgue, there was a similar scene of panicked people as bodies were beginning to be delivered to the coroner. Officials were even forced to prematurely open the doors to the city's new morgue, which was still under construction at the time. Those whose lives were lost ranged in age from 9 to 46, and the majority of the victims were mostly boys and young men, and most of them lived within walking distance of the factory. The jubilance of the Stanford win was tempered by the mourning of the lives lost in the glassworks factory roof collapse. Thirteen were declared dead at the scene. But throughout the rest of the day and over the next week, Newsboys were shouting out the latest numbers of dead and wounded. Over the course of the next week or so, the death toll would come to 23 in total, as day by day, the wounded were unable to survive their injuries. The 23rd death attributed to this disaster, however, would not be added to the tally until three years later, when one man who fell suffered a severe spinal cord injury, went through several surgeries, and had both of his legs amputated, yet did not ever fully recover until he finally died three years after the fall. The entire city was in grieving. News of the roof collapse disaster did make its way onto the front page of the New York Times, and it was extensively covered by local newspapers. But looking back upon the way the news was presented, it seemed kind of oddly fractured. On one page, there was news of the devastation and horror of the collapse, and on the next was news of the exciting Stanford win at the big game. It had even been described by the San Francisco Chronicle as the most exciting football game ever played by the two California universities. And no reporter asked any player or any coach about their thoughts of the tragedy, something that most certainly would have happened today. And what about the college newspapers? 
Well, the Stanford Daily featured a lengthy article about the victory, yet not one single word about the disaster that befell spectators.